So Trent, uh, baby boy, my Hello. best friend. Okay. What have you been eating recently? It's nice to see you. Um, I ate something interesting in preparation for this. I just had some grocery store sushi. I don't know if that's divisive or not. How, do you have a Yummy. stance? Oh, you're pro? No, I'm not. Um, oh, you're it's anti? probably bad. I, I don't really care. In all honesty, I don't really care. Um, I don't think I've ever had grocery store sushi. But for all my Rutgers peeps, I have had sushi from... Uh, what's the place in College Avenue? Um, uh, oh, from Brower? No, 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 no. Not, not Brower. The one where you can get with meal swipes. Cafe West? Cafe West. I've had, I've had oh, sushi from Cafe West. Oh, they do have sushi. At, but which is essentially grocery store sushi isn't the only option like california rolls um i think i think there's one more but i think it's like mostly california rolls. believe it or not as tempted as i was i was vegetarian during that time and i never i never caved with the cafe west sushi wasn't particularly tempting might i add oh so do you remember like a few months ago when i mentioned my discovery of like the cookie dough in a jar kind of deal, or like yes, 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 yes. So today, update, uh, I found the Funfetti version, and boy, I'm living the American dream. What ha- would you? What, what did you have? Well, Trent, thanks for asking. I had, um, so I had Indian food. Uh, sure. I had a thing called paratha, which is. Uh, I don't. I don't know how to explain it. It's. Uh, it's like. Uh, it's like bread. Sure. In in a way, it's like flat. Um, a flat yeah. bread. No, I would never call that. Call it that. Um, don't be ridiculous. Uh, but all my all my Indian peeps, uh, all 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 of them will know what I'm talking about. I looked at our um, analytics. We have um, a few listeners in India, so <laughs> it's nice yeah. that you shouted them out like that. Yeah, I mean, look, man, I, uh, we, the, 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 what's the, what's, what's the saying? The customer is always right. That, that's a saying. Um, Does yeah, it apply so here? <laughs> it, it like, set it adjacently, I think, you know, it's like, give them what they want. Give the customer what they want. Is that a thing? So what were like the, uh, <clears throat> the sides? Uh, like, like plain yogurt and, um pickled carrot like baby carrots or like full long no. carrots no no it was like uh chopped up and then it's like all spicy and shit it's like indie oh wait yeah it's all spicy parth you're allowed to curse it's all oh, right. i don't know your, your parents are listening yeah um, well, I, parth and i talked before this and we were like it's a big it's, as you described it's a uh it's a monstrous interview so obviously our, our relatives are gonna hear this one so that we had yeah. to uh maintain a certain level of etiquette we said to keep it pg-13 well, well since you've mentioned that we're having a guest why don't we just cut right to the intro so we can get right to it how about that trend does that sound good well i i think by this time we will have cut to Cue the intro, intro. 
welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the movie. This week we're talking about Promising Young Woman, and with us we have Mary Weissmiller-Wallace. Was this a good interview, Trent? Yes, as you <coughs> um, eloquently described it, it was a uh, beastly interview. Um, yeah, so this was a long interview, I've heard. Is it particularly long? I don't know. It only went on for about an hour and 20 minutes. We talked. She talked. Classic. Should we just get into it? Let, yeah. Let, let's, let it speak for itself. All right, guys. Let's, we'll, we hope you enjoy what's about to come. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Mary Weissmiller-Wallace. She worked on many, many films that we'd like to talk about. She's a still photographer, and she's worked on our film for today, Promising Young Woman. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, Looking forward to the conversation. So um, just to start off, what, what got you introduced into like the film world? I was in college and I was studying sciences, which I loved, but I realized that I had a creative side to my nature, which would not be fulfilled if I pursued the sciences. And I had to make a hard call. And then I had to think, well, if I'm pursuing the arts, what is it that I'm interested in? And I'm not exactly clear how it came to me but I decided that I wanted to be involved in the film industry because it is a collaborative art where everybody has to be highly creative and yet they have completely uh, separate specialized fields and nothing is the same with a different you know if you have a different prop department the movie's different so it's it's just this strange swimming of fishes of creative people. So did you have a love of movies earlier in life or did this sudden career interest uh, take you by surprise also? I, I loved movies. I loved them, but I was not like a movie nerd. I liked them as part of something that I would share with friends, I, you know, where we would go out together, we'd see one, we'd talk about it. But I also saw like the mirror image of um, my dream life and films. And I, I, part of the way that I knew that I was a creative force was that my dream life was so peculiar and vivid and exceptional and reminded me so much of filmmaking that I just took an interest in films actually uh, more on how they were made than that I loved going to them, although I did also love going to them. That's great. Um, So what was your first job working in the industry? Okay, so the way that I did it was uh, I ended up going to USC Film School for a Master of Fine Arts in film production. 
because I wanted to go to film school and learn more about film making. So I had a friend who was offered a job as assistant to the director and producer on a feature, which he declined, but he said, if you can afford to take it, they're not paying much, uh, but if you can afford to take it, you will learn so much. And I was super thankful for that opportunity because the learning was my priority, not the income at that point, although I got into a lot of debt <laughs> thinking that way. But anyway, and so my first job was actually, again, as assistant producer, assistant to the director on um, three films in a row, Masters of the Universe, a film called Cherry 2000, which if you haven't seen it, is quirky and amazing. And I have a little Robert Redford story to tell about that. Um, it, the film has nothing to do with Robert Redford, but I have a little story. But anyway, and the other one was called Farewell to the King, written by John Milius, starring um, Nick Nolte and Nigel Havers, and shot in Borneo, Borneo, Malaysia. And it was there that I fell into my camera. So you mentioned your time at USC Masters Film Program, and that's obviously like the, the place to go for film. Um, and I wanted to ask how your time was there and what that was like. It blew my mind. I loved it. I cannot tell you how much I loved it. And part of the reason I loved it is because I was with my tribe. And before, when I'd been undergraduate, I was at a really amazing and wonderful school that I kind of didn't fit into. And I kind of had the square peg in a round hole syndrome. And instead of going, oh, you guys are wrong for me, I was asking myself, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm not okay. Whereas I got to USC film school, I'm like, oh, I get it. I'm like this, not like that. Um, also, I was really fortunate because I was, okay, so I went to, I, my master's program was three years long. And I went to the first two years of it at the old film school that George Lucas went to, which was old military barracks on the USC property. So it was these funky bungalows from, I, I guess, like, you know, the 40s or whatever. And the graffiti on the ceiling in the editorial room was unimaginable. And it was just this really super experience. And then my third year, they they bulldozed the old school and moved us into the Steven Spielberg campus, um, which was totally paid for by Steven Spielberg. And while we had like way more equipment, more we had more of everything, it had a sterility of being new modern architecture. Um, I'm hoping now it's like funkier or, or whatever, but but at that point it was more like working in you know, a fancy hospital or airport than at the old place. So anyway, I just, I had an amazing experience and I loved the students. They were creatives. They were, um, you know, and, and like, like the people that wanted to be editors were just this, this breed and the people that were interested in sound and the, the people who chose camera. And I, it was just a, 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 a wonderful creative experience. 
another one of our guests, um, Evan Schiff, he was a um, USC editor graduate, and he edited Birds of Prey. So just wow, cool. Um, so where was your undergrad? Just out of curiosity, and what I was. Did- I went to a college called Mills College, which is an all women's college in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was amazing. And the reason I went to an all women's college is I'd gone to actually a private uh, co-ed high school. And uh, when you're a teenager and there's a bunch of really fabulous guys around, it's a little bit hard to concentrate. And so I thought like, okay, well, I just did that. I just had that train wreck, which was fun, but I don't really need... I don't really need that for college because I'm going to do college like college. Mm-hmm. So I went to an all women's college and it was really amazing, except that it had a slight uh, wealthy sorority vibe that was not m- mine. And I was in the sciences. And so I just kind of got, I got a little bit off course Um my I did graduate in um, uh, audiovisual communications, which was the you know precursor to going to film school. But it was a brand new program, um, so it wasn't like it was a destination for people like me. It was it was it was kind of a catch-all at that point. Right. So uh, you brought it up a little bit, but um, there are people that went into camera and uh, just to segue it into our into your chosen profession. Could you explain what exactly a unit still photographer actually does and like what your role is on set? I'd love to, <laughs> because even a lot of people in the film industry and a lot of people uh, in the studios don't actually know what we do. Um, so I take still photographs for publicity, advertising, and archiving. And I stand next to the motion picture camera uh, on features. um, I'm in the union. And so on features, they are, um, I'm mandatory staffing. So I'm there, you know, from call to wrap every day on a, on a, uh, every day on a feature. And I stand next to the motion picture camera and I stop motion and capture everything that the motion picture camera is is capturing. Um, and so if if you were to take a frame out of the movie and there was a stuntman flying, it would just be this big blur because it's motion picture. So I sit next to it and I catch the stuntman in midair. But also um, it's the same thing. You, you know, if you were to take a frame out of the film, um, it's harder to control blinking. Whereas I stop motion in a, like a fraction of a section second. That being said, I do uh, work with the DP. I work with the camera operator. I work with the sound man. I work with the director. I see what the vision of the movie is because it is when you see the stills that you go, Oh, wow. That looks like a weird movie. That looks like an interesting movie. Oh, I love that actor. Like, Whoa, what's that about? And it is the stills that announce the coming of the movie. And if there was no publicity and no marketing and no advertising, nobody would know to go see those incredible performances. That being said, it does not require stills to make a movie. And when people start getting agitated and they start looking for something they can control, they can go like, do you have to be there right now? Or like, don't you have enough? But they don't really know because I don't report to anybody. 
I'm my own boss. I do turn work over to the studios. So I do have somebody over my shoulder seeing if I'm, you know, good at my job or not. But on the set, I don't answer to anybody. And I think if they could see by the end of the show what my body of work is, the thousands of pictures that documented all of these people, when the director and the DP talk, when when the director is reaching and he's 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 helping an actor, uh, the the work is just this incredible um, archive, and it's great for right then when they release the movie. But also if they do a retrospective on, you know, that director, that actor, that DP, um, then they go back and they choose, they go, oh, you know, here's the DP Chivo on, you know, this movie with directed by Terrence Malick in Texas. Um, and there's these super cool shots of Chivo doing this thing. Uh, so we were wondering what your relationship with the director, the DP, and the actors are when you're on set. So I'm a collaborator and I'm a presence, but I don't actually technically have a relationship with them because I just do my own thing. So, for example, if you can imagine like the the boom operator. He's, he's he or she is holding the camera, recording sound, and they may have to speak to the director, they may have to speak to the DP, they may have to speak to an actor, but their job is not to direct the actors, to talk to the, you know, to, to, to they, they just, their job is to know exactly what to do and be completely silent and anonymous and just do their best work. And that's kind of true of everybody. Again, like the focus puller. He has to talk to the DP. Sometimes he has to talk to the director. Sometimes he speaks to the actors. You know, please, I need you to hit your marks or at least be, you know, within the zone. But his job is not to talk to those people. His job is to just zen in and just follow focus. Uh, you, you worked on Promising Young Woman, which is our chosen film of the day. And mm -hmm. uh, how did you get involved with that? What was that like? Uh, it was really fun. It was, uh, I, I kind of got into it sideways. I was called to see if I was available. I'd been recommended. I happened to be available. I didn't know that much about the project. I did know that the director Emerald was just a, you know, a fabulous person. Um, you know, the cast I was really interested in. Um, and I didn't know that much about the story, uh, before I said yes. So, um, in that situation, I was given, once I had said yes, I, I was given the script at the last minute and was sort of like, oh, wow, how, how's this going to be handled? How's this going to be done? Um, but I loved, I loved working with that team. I loved working with the, with the DP. Also, again, the lighting, choosing the mood and then trying to echo the mood, you know, with my exposures and my choice of angles. Um, it was a challenging, subject for me personally, because one could perceive it, let's just say, as a revenge drama. And revenge is not one of my favorite topics, regardless of gender. Um, so I think, you know, in some ways, it's super cool to have a woman's revenge movie, but revenge, I'm not big on revenge. Um, 
So I was really trying to say, how do I shoot this in a way to completely empower the film, the way the director wants it, the way the actors are giving it, the way it's lit, um, and just sort of, you know, suspend my own perspective on the subject matter and completely support the filmmakers. And I'm really glad I could take that outlook because then it just became a lot of fascinating fun. And I ended up respecting everybody um, more than when more, you know, I knew more about them and respected them even more at the end than the beginning. So you mentioned you got Promising Young Woman like through a recommendation. And we were wondering, how does one go from job to job in your line of work? And if you're like freelance and you're working for the studio, right? Right. So I am completely freelance. Um, And the way I get work, I mean, first of all, by now I have a reputation, which is helpful. But um, essentially, sometimes the director asks for me. Sometimes the publicist has heard of me and or worked with me and recommends me. Sometimes the DP has worked with me. They say, oh, she's worked with that DP four times. You know, when when the going gets tough, she knows how to dance that dance. Um, So uh, it is always different. But when I'm looking for work, I tend to go to the studios and say, look, I'm between jobs. I'm looking for work. Do you have any greenlit? projects that are coming up that you might consider me for and then they say yes and you know and they tell me like who's involved I'm like oh I've worked with that person before oh really you have oh okay well you know sure we'll put your name in so either I'm asked for by a director or a studio puts me up with a group of maybe five recommendations and the filmmakers pick pick somebody from the group So it seems to me that with like the nature of your job being that you have to be there from like start to finish that especially at this point in your career, you have to really take into consideration like the all your script offers because you're going to be there for a number of months, right? Yes and no. Yes and no. If I'm offered, let's just say three jobs and they they all pay the same and they're all at the same time and then I read the scripts. But what ends up happening really is like one comes in first. You don't have the other ones. You're so thankful to have a job that you say yes. And then just when you've committed to the other, then another one comes in and you have to make a choice and you're at home, you know, like wringing your hands. Um, that being said, the truth of the matter is I, in my life, have had to work for money. I have to work to support myself. I have to work to help support my family. And actually, in our, in our particular situation, I was farther in my career. I loved my career more than my husband. And so we made the decision that I would stay with my career and I would be the primary breadwinner. So a lot of times, I took a job because we, I needed to pay the bills. But what ended up happening was after a while, I found the people that I made sense to and who made sense to me, and they started calling me again. And that's the best. Like, so, for example, I've done, I did five Clint Eastwood movies in a row. I've done three Terrence Malick movies and was actually asked for more, but there was a family situation that I, I 
had said yes. And then I had to say no. And then I didn't ever get to work with him again. I'm like, Oh, but my family was, my family was, and is my priority. I had, you know, I had a younger kid. So, um, and I did, I got to work a lot with, um, Alex, director, Alexander Payne. I got to work with director Sam Raimi, you know, Spider-Man fame. I mean, I have worked big with Sam Raimi fans here. Yeah. Okay. We were just about to get into that. Okay, well, you can get there because I love Sam. So I guess what I'm saying is after a while, people met me and then they would ask for me again. Or if they saw my name in a group submitted by the studio, they would pick me. Um, And then I got to work with people I liked and who liked me. And boy, is that different and better than either coming in cold or uh, working with people who don't like you. So, um, on a film set, uh, what type of camera do you use and like, does that change? And, um, yeah, just if you could go into your equipment. Okay. So I started in film and I started from the very beginning Canon and I adored it a hundred percent. And, um, I shot, you know, I had three bodies, multiple lenses. I can talk about the lenses in a second. Um, when, when everything went digital, I hated digital was a complete snob. Um, but I couldn't really explain why I hated it as much as I did. So I made a point of educating myself and I was scared because literally, you know, growing up, I didn't know how to make my toaster work. So I was not a techie. But I said, no, you know, oh, digital is so horrible. I'm, you know, so I really said, I'm going to teach myself how to do this. And then I'm going to be able to say exactly why I hate it. And (laughs) I loved it so much. So your enemy. Yeah. (laughs) So I just switched over from Canon film to Canon digital. And I was one of the very first unit still photographers to go digital. Um, And there's kind of a cool story on that if you end up asking about it. But then recently, so I was, you know, I was all Canon and I used the 1DX, which is like their big sports model because, pe- you know, people move in movies and I, I really needed to be able to track action and stop motion. Um, and I had a huge kit of, of prime lenses. I, I didn't use, I didn't use um, zooms at all then. But then the mirrorless silent cameras came out. And um, one of the things that you may or may not know about my career was that when we had um, cameras with mirrors that made noise, click, 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 we had to put them in these great big soundproof boxes that we called blimps. um, And they were um, this big box in front of your face and makes you look strange. And so the actors see this big box going like that at them. And um, when the mirrorless came out, I could get rid of the um, the the I could get rid of the blimp because the mirrorless cameras are silent because the mirror isn't going up and down, going click click click, and they work through a video tap through the lens, so it's still perfect through the lens viewing, but it's in a video tap. And they have a couple other tricks to them. For example, you can see your exposure and your color temperature. So if you've got the wrong um, ISO or you have the wrong, um, you know, you're set for tungsten, not daylight, you can see it through the lens. And that, for my job, that and the fact that it's silent, boom, 
I went Sony. I've got two Sony A9s, which is the top of their line, although they just came out with an A1, which I have to check out. And for lenses now, I do have prime lenses, but I have found that I very often use my zooms. So it's 24 to 70 and then 70 to 200. And they're f2.8, which means that's a pretty fast, um, a pretty fast lens, and the glass is gorgeous. And I can really adapt. So if the boom comes into my shot, I can just zoom in a little bit. I can really be flexible for the situation, and I find that um, I can get more really good shots using when I can use my zooms. Uh, than I could before when I would be when I would pick okay I'm going to do everything on a 35 and then oh my god I wish I had a 200 right now I'm in a uh, love affair with Canon right now Um, uh, and I prefer zoom lenses also I feel kind of stuck in place when I use prime lenses although I like the focus options but um, Parth um well, yeah, uh, no, uh, well, I was just going to say one other thing is the Steve Yedlin, who's the cinematographer for um, Ryan Johnson's movies. There's a lot of cool stuff about color science and like film versus digital. Um, but since you mentioned him, I have to ask because I'm a Sam Raimi fanboy, I'm a Spider-Man fanboy, and I have to ask you about Spider-Man 3. What was that like? Um, do you have any Sam Raimi stories? Again, Big, we, big fans. We saw the photos on your website from Spider-Man 3, and they were awesome. And it was shocking because these are photos that are burned in my mind, and now I'm talking with the person that's actually made them. That's nice. Thank you. Um, I Okay, first of all, Sam is an amazing, amazing man to work with. Um, he is funny, subtle, quiet, intelligent, um, knows what he wants, when given choices, knows how to to define define and 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 arrive at what he wants. Um, he's a super collaborator. Um, really spends time with his actors, but knows his DP intimately, and they come in as a team prepared for you know, how things will shift as, as, you know, the different characters get their own kind of look and stuff. Um, he, uh, I'm just, I'm a huge Sam fan, huge Sam. And, and for me personally, um, both he left me alone to do my best work, which is great. Cause some people, um, I don't know, they, they'll, they'll either try to control you or, or whatever he did. He didn't, he just like, you're here for a reason. You know what you're doing. Go ahead and do it. But then also, when I would share some of the stuff, I go, "Oh my God, Sam, look at this shot." Um, you know, of of because I, I then I also did Oz the Great and Powerful. Like, look at this shot of the Yellow Brook Road. And he would he 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 just lo- he just loves visuals, and so he could really get excited by the photography, and that again just 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 like he would watch me shoot and he would see what I was shooting and I I would notice him. He'd catch my eye and he'd smile 
because he knew that I saw something that he loved also. I've listened to the commentary tracks for all three of the Spider-Man movies, and all it is is the cast and crew fawning over how collaborative and great Sam Raimi is. So you're corroborating their story. Um, <laughs> you, you, you've also worked with, I'm assuming you've had to talk with and whatnot, Bill Pope, who's my favorite cinematographer, and uh, if you have anything about him, because I think he's awesome. Bill Pope, he is very awesome. He, the thing about about him again is that he's he's a relatively quiet person, um, and a very very intelligent man. And when you look at him, you can see he's quiet, and you can sort of tell that he's intelligent. But then when he starts to create the visuals. It's breathtaking, you you know, which camera moves he chooses and how much depth he's using or or going from depth to flat. Like he really works the visual world. And um, I just feel like like he he works very closely with the production designers um, and and, you know, and they, they pick their color palette in advance and. Um, I don't know. He just is a, a very, very creative man. Um, but again, not, um, I mean, it, it's sort of like he just, he just very quietly blows your mind. <laughs> um, so here's a out of left field question. You were uncredited on Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and we were wondering what the story was there. That show belonged to Zaid Rosenthal, who is a unit still photographer, and that was his show, okay? And, but he had been on it for maybe five or five and a half months, and it showed no sign of rapping, and he had been away from his family, and so I, at a certain point when maybe they said, you know, oh, this is going to go another month and a half, or this is going to go another three weeks. And it was past the date he'd already been promised that he could go back to his family. Um, he, I guess, went home to his family. And so they brought somebody in to just replace him for the last two weeks uh, or whatever it was, which was me. But then that turned into the last six weeks. But it was Zaid's show. So I, um, I, I mean, I would have loved to have been credited because I would have felt great, but I did not. Uh, it, it was not my show. Oh, what scenes were they doing in your six weeks? So we did um, a lot of motorcycle work, um, which was fantastic because Arnold on a motorcycle is just really a sight to behold. Um, we did um, the scene. Gosh, I, I'm so sorry. I can't even really tell you what it was, but where the 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 not the, not the Terminator man, but the Terminator machine mm -hmm. was in like this huge like the, this like junkyard apocalyptic world. Mm -hmm. um, right, 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 right. Uh, so um, I did that work, um, and then a lot of work with. Um, the Terminator and, um, you know, the young boy, the sort of more, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of a specific scene and nothing's coming to mind, but a lot of sort of big brother mm -hmm. scenes. 
Uh, well, that kind of ties into another James Cameron picture, uh, Titanic. Big James Cameron fans. Uh, what w- Titanic must have been a monster of a film to shoot. And was to- there, and was there a big model boat? Okay, so Titanic was the hugest film I had and practically have ever worked on. And I think Monster is a really good way to describe it because it was it was just it was huge. It was the the, the move working on the movie was like like climbing Mount Everest. It was all nights. It was um you know, seven months, we were in Nova Scotia, we were in Mexico, we were in Los Angeles. There was a, a, a ship that was almost to scale. It was not quite exact, but it was almost to scale. And I apologize for not knowing the statistics. I always ask my husband, because he has the statistics in his head, so that they don't, they don't, I don't hold them in my head, but it was almost to scale. And another thing that was insane about it was because it was in a three acre tank of water that we could walk in up to our chests um, for most of it, but right where the ship was, it was over 60 feet deep. So the ship was up on these huge gimbals. um, And when it sank, the, you know, it would hinge and then it would move into the 60 foot um, abyss, essentially. And then when they would call cut, it would come back out again, right itself, and people would run around drying it off. And all the extras would like have to get their coats dry again. And then we would do it again. But because it was essentially three acres of, of tank on land right next to the water, so that when you were up, you looked out at sea, but you could only do that in one direction. So they had everything flipped. They had all the signs flipped, all the buttons on the opposite sides of the clothing. So when we were supposed to be shooting from left to right, all the signage was flipped, all the buttons were flipped. We did everything from right to left, left to right, whatever. And then they flipped the film when they edited it. And so, you know, they knew like, oh, we're shooting left to right now. Oh, we're shooting right to left now. It was just this incredible, um, the logistics were were amazing and difficult. And we were wet. I was in wetsuits, dry suits. Um, When we were shooting the interiors, they were also on these stages that were submerged underwater. And you would start and it would be dry like the dining room. And then again, it would tilt. Um, and then it would start going into the water of the tank. It was a tank of water and it, the water level would rise and rise and rise. And so I would start, you know, I'd start and I'd be shooting and then I'd be shooting like this and I'd be up on my toes and I'd be up like this. And then I'd be blowing air into my dry suit so I could get a little bit more until I'm up with my head knocking on the ceiling and I'm floating Um, And I've like stepped back onto a structure that allowed for the crew to stay up. And we had safety drivers that were their jobs where they stayed underwater and they watched our feet to make sure that we always had footing. It was logistically just incredible. And again, almost all of it was shot at night because most a lot of the movies night exterior. 
So uh, another movie I wanted to ask you about was uh, Lady Bird. That was a joy. That was just uh, that was just an amazing pleasure. The um, Saoirse Ronan is smart and wonderful and easygoing and collaborative and low key and personable and. Um, you know, she's such she's such a chameleon and such an eclectic person, um, but she got her role of like like a small town uh, inland California fifties uh, or you know back back in time person that um, that you would think that that's who she was, and then to to later see her interview and you get to a sense of who she really is, and you think, my gosh, what an actress! that she could, she could be that other girl. So did you get to interact with Greta Gerwig at all? Yes. I, yes. I, um, the thing is, again, for my job, it is better if I mind my own business and I stay kind of silent. Um, but for sure, I mean, I, I, I had to work with her. I had to show her what I was doing. Sometimes I, I had to stand right with her. Sometimes, um, I would, while we were between takes, I'd be part of a conversation with the DP and her just talking about whatever. Um, I, I would have loved to have like, I would have loved to have gotten to know her better, but it, but I would have not been doing my job to have done that. So I just have to, I just have to take what I got, but yes, I interacted with her a lot. And truthfully, I had the pleasure of shooting her a lot because I was so in support of the way she was directing. And again, you know, just a a female director and stuff. So I got just like a slew of super cool pictures of her working. And that was always just such a charge for me to have, you know? So yeah, I I did. And I enjoyed it. So you mentioned that you, I think you said you worked on five Clint Eastwood films um, and um, hot take Clint Eastwood is a cool guy. Um, So uh, could you speak on any of those experiences and what those movies were like to shoot? Yeah. So what, um, they were incredible. And the films that I did shoot were, um, I started on a smaller film called Bloodwork. We then did Mystic River in Boston, which is with um, Sean Penn and Tim Robbins and um, a, a, a fantastic cast. Um, but, and then I went on and did Million Dollar Baby, which was a mind blowing experience. And then I did, um, letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers. Those were the last two that I did. Um, the thing about Clint is, again, he knows exactly what he wants, and he he sort of specializes in not catching people off guard, but what he wants is before anything becomes systematic. If you do 10 takes, people kind of start doing it the same way over and over again. And so sure, the director can say, well, you know, can I get a little bit more fear? Can I get a little bit more? But what what Clint loved was when people were kind of getting a feeling for how it was going to be going and that there there's an unknown quality. And he very often, particularly, well, really particularly in the first three of those films, but he would do one take 
And that was it. And you knew that you had to be, you had to be your best having never done it before. Um, and that is not easy. I mean, you know, uh, the reason they do multiple takes is so that everybody gets up to speed and everybody can do their best work. To have to do your best work and take one when you don't know what's coming is it's a challenge and it's a technique, but it gets kind of a raw performance from his actors and it gets sort of unknown movements from the camera people that can't, that shouldn't be duplicated. So anyway, um, the set, he does not allow any yelling or loud talking or loud banter and laughter. And um, for example, when it's time to roll, very quietly, the first assistant director uh, like twirls his finger and says, you know, okay, we're rolling now. And the, the set has to be quiet enough so that you can hear a man very quietly say, we're rolling. And so, so if you are having a conversation, you're going to be talking while they're rolling and the whole crew will look at you. So nobody does that. And so it's just this super still, quiet, soft-spoken, few words, and you move like a clock. And it just keeps going. And he very often would finish his whole day before lunch. And he'd say, he'd say, okay, thank you, everybody. That's lunch and wrap. And everybody's going, what? You know, we, we've only worked six hours. We're used to working 15, you know. Um, but uh, at any rate, he just had, he had a certain style. And if it, if it wasn't, if we weren't done by lunch, we'd be done within two or three hours after lunch. So that's like maybe an eight-hour day. And most features at that time were a 12-hour minimum. And... Um, often, you know, 14 and 15, um, with just so you guys know, with COVID, a lot of the regulations that they've put into place so that we can work and be safe is keeping it to a 10 hour day. It's a very different experience. Um, and I have to say it's actually better because 12, 13, 14 hour days plus driving. And what if it, you were working all night and you're driving after 14 hours and it's dawn and you're exhausted? Um, the way that feature films have been made literally cause physical burnout and really make people unhealthy and start to not feel good in their heads because of, of, of sleep deprivation. And now with COVID, with the 10 hour days, it's you can make a movie you just have to know what you're doing and you can still feel good by the end of the show. And that's kind of new. So uh, I read online that you've been the president of the Society for Motion Picture Still Photographers for two years. And we were wondering, what do you do and like, where do your members come from? Okay, so I was the president for four consecutive years. What I, what I did was this. Um, I, I started, I was for two years with a co-chair, a co-president. Co her name was Nicola Good. And then um, we were also the head of our the exhibition committee and the archiving committee. And then she stepped back and we just co-chaired those together. But I was the president by myself for two years. So I was essentially president for four years in a row, two as co-chair, two, two solo. And last year, yes, last year I stepped down. Um, I loved it more than anything. But four years 
it's essentially it's a service job. Even it's a presidential the, term. Yes. Good. Hey, I never thought of that. Nice. Nice. I like that. But anyway, so uh, as president of the Society of Motion Picture Stealth Photographers, what I sought to do was to bring up our visibility because a lot of people don't know what we do. And also the people in the Society of Motion Picture Stealth Photographers, which we call the SMPSP, um, we have to have worked a minimum of eight years in our craft. We have a really hard um you know, process of, of choosing new members and because we both require that the people be artistic uh, and creative in their job as well as perfect technicians. Um, but so I worked um, a lot in trying to get our work exhibited because what happens is we'll shoot like this, you know, body of work and they will use 12 pictures that we would not have chosen to advertise the movie and you see like your picture come out in a newspaper and you go oh my god why did they use that one that's not my best work so after a while we started taking what we consider our best work as artists and exhibiting it so we've gotten to exhibit at the academy of motion picture arts and sciences we've um, exhibited um at um atlanta's um um, photo festival at um, New York, um, Photo New York, Photo LA. Um, we also went to all the archivists and said, hold the bodies of work together. Keep them together. They are of incredible value. And the archivists go, we know. Can you please tell the rest of the studio? They won't give us enough. They keep making us, you know, downsize. We have no place for it. So we just tried to rally everybody to protect our bodies of work, both when it was analog and now that it's digital. So you, this is going to be a, a bit of a reach for a segue, but you just mentioned downsizing and you worked on a film called Downsizing, um, directed by Alexander Payne. Thank you, Trent. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, that's uh, one of my friends. Chloe is a huge Matt Damon fan. And um, if, if you have any matt damon stories well i will i want to say that i only worked on the usa version it most of it was actually filmed up in vancouver and there was another small photographer um so I, I worked in los angeles and i worked alexander payne likes to work in his home state of nebraska so we got to do a little bit of work there um matt damon is he's fabulous because he really He's one of these people who completely embodies the part and you start to think that's him. And then he comes out with himself and he is quirky and intelligent, very funny, um, just really a, a bright, funny, witty guy, um, plays with words. And so you, you get caught off guard because you, think you know him as the character, you know, and, and that he is the character because he stays so focused with the character and then he'll turn around and just surprise you. Lovely, lovely man. Uh, so you also worked on Midsommar and I believe that was filmed in Hungary, although I believe it was based in Sweden, right? Okay. So it was supposed to take place uh, in New York and in Sweden and it was filmed in Budapest, Hungary. And they had a, they brought in the American cast. 
And then they had an entire Swedish cast, many of whom hardly spoke English, but are incredibly famous in Sweden. So it's like the, you know, the glitterati of, of Swedish actors of Swedish films. Um, and so we had um, the, the, the assistant director, you know, who ran the set and then the Swedish assistant director who, you know, translated and echoed. And um, it, so it was sort of like, it, like everything was being done twice for the two casts. <laughs> and I know they really made the whole village, right? And you got to experience that? I did. Um, they built that, you know, basically there was some, some farm with huge fields and they built the whole, the whole village there and all the interiors and exteriors were, um, were, were usable. So you could do a take where you'd come out of one place and walk into the next. And it was all, it was all live and it was all practical. You know what I mean? It's not like they walk up to the door and they knock and the door opens and you can't really see in. And then three weeks later, there's a different place where a door that looks the same, they knock and they let you in in your interior. No, we, 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 were, we were in the village. Yeah, I think Ari Aster is really interesting. Did you have a chance to see Hereditary before you signed up for Midsommar? I did because I really love... I really love to research my um, the people that I'm going to be working with. Uh, the thing is, is that that's not my genre. It, I mean, I get the creeps way too hard. Um, and so when I saw Hereditary, I was like, I hope that I can actually do this. Um, and, and then I read the script and I was like, I hope that I can do this. But, uh, as it turned out, so I'm sorry, I, I should have clarified this at the beginning. I ended up actually only doing two weeks of it. I was offered the entire show. I accepted the entire show. But then I was offered I got I was offered another project by a director that I always work with. And so I ended up having to go on to the other project. And so I, I told them, I'm so sorry. I know I accepted. Um, I want to make good. I want to make sure you get people, you know, somebody. So I'm free until this certain date, at which point I have to leave. But if you want, you know, if there's anything I can do. And they said, well, would you be willing to go to, to Budapest for two weeks? I'm like, um, let me think yes. I would actually. And um, it, what it turned out was that the two weeks that I shot was all the stuff leading up to the point where it got so scary that I don't know if I could ever do it. So, I so it worked out. It worked out perfect for me. And I got to do um, a photo shoot with the actor. So they gave me the barn and I set up an enormous, enormous photo studio where, where I could have people like walking like distance like, you know, they're little and they walk all the way to me with all these lights. And I was working with um, Hungarian grip and electric, not a ton of English, super wonderful, helpful people. And I just created this, 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 this uh, gray screen world and they would just feed me the actors and I would just play and do all these incredible stills, which we thought would be the poster, um, but the poster is not mine. The poster is from Unit Work, 
from um, a Hungarian still photographer um, and is just a brilliant, scary shot um, that uh, could only have happened in the moment. And that's what I really love about my job is because what we do is we capture moments and we have to be able to see them. We have to be able to watch. We have to wait till the glint of the tear in the eye is just so. We have to be just completely empathetic and intuitive and just lost in our frame. And, you know, we, we also forget that there's you know, booms and green screens and, and, and light stands. And we're just up in the grill of these actors back on a, you know, 70 millimeter lens, not in their grill. <laughs> right. So uh, doing kind of a tonal shift from uh, horror all the way back around to comedy. Um, you worked on one of my favorite comedies of all time, Tropic Thunder. And I'm... Uh, obviously Ben Stiller's amazing in that, but it features one of the best performances from my favorite actor, Tom Cruise. And um, anything you could say on that would be extremely awesome if you could. Okay. The way I saw that movie was live theater comedy in the jungles one summer. We laughed. And we laugh and they, I mean, you know, Jack Black is hysterical. Robert Downey Jr. is a genius. And I mean that amazingly. Ben Stiller is so focused and he was so clear on like, he was, he, he was a director playing an actor, playing an actor um, and all the nuances, uh, you know, uh, and, and so, so, like and and the actor that he was playing was too sissified to be in the jungles where we were, but he Ben Stiller was not too sissified to be in the jungles and working like okay, so I've done two movies in in that we shot in Kauai. One was Tropic Thunder, where we were actually in the um, rainforest, and it's really hard to shoot there. And the other was The Descendants, Alexander Payne directing. We were on the beaches. That's nicer. But uh, again, we just, um, you know, we just were in the jungles with this. Nick Nolte was also in Tropic Thunder. I mean, the cast was just brilliant. And um, I, 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 again, as I said, it was live comedy in the jungle one summer for me. On that situation, I was fortunate enough to get to shoot the movie poster. So when you see the poster... That's mine. Oh my and gosh. So, so what I got to do was um, like in, in, in that situation, sort of like I'm the director, right? But I had watched everything the director had done, Ben Stiller. Um, I had watched every, the way the DP lit it, John Toll. And so I was basically trying to recreate that, but for stills, they gave me helicopters Oh I had helicopters landing in the back of my stills. I had the guys jumping into helicopters and then the helicopter taking off slightly so that it was clear that the helicopter was not on the ground. And then the guys jumping out and they were, they gave me really specific storyboards of what they wanted. And we planned out the day, you know, the helicopter is going to do this. It's going to do that. We had safety meetings, but um, it just was like, a photographer's dream and all of the lead cast, you know, I, I mean, 
Ben Stiller jumping out of helicopters. Oh, can I tell one other tropic story? Oh, please do. Keep, keep talking. We're on your time. Okay, so uh, a lot of helicopters in the movie, and that means a lot of helicopter pilots, right? But the movie was supposed to take place, uh, it was a movie about a movie that took place in Vietnam, and so those are all Hueys and older um, helicopters from that period. But the camera helicopters are brand new, state-of-the-art with gimbals so that the, the, the camera doesn't, you know, no camera shake, right? And the still photographer does not go up, you know, when they're shooting, you don't do stills from helicopters. But I had made friends with the pilots um, just because they're fabulous humans. The kind of people that want to be pilots are great people. And so they were doing this incredible sequence where um, Ben Stiller's character was on the top of a remote mountain, you know, jungle mountain. Um, and the, 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 the picture helicopter was circling him, you know, around and you could see that, that, that there was no civilization, you know, for miles and miles and miles. It was super remote location. And so one of the helicopter pilots asked me, well, do you want to get that shot? And I'm like, and like inside me, you know, a little voice is going, oh, no, that's not my, my job. But I'm also going, you know, of, of course I want that, that, of course I want that, but I can't have that. And he's like, well, you know, I can't get you on the, on the picture kind because of, I can't have that many people, but I'll take you up in one of the Hueys. And there's a little voice in me going, I don't want to go in a Huey. And, and there's an another, old military plane. Right. And, then, and there's a bigger part of me going like, oh, my God, yes. So they strapped me in, opened the cargo door. I had, you know, I had, and I had full safety gear. And we rose up. And I am going, oh, my God, I have a husband. I have a daughter. What? am I doing? And we go and we go and we dance with this, this helicopter, this, you know, camera helicopter. So we can never be in its shop because it's Ben Stiller by himself in the middle of nowhere. Right. So we're like chasing it. We're avoiding it. We're making dips. I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is just horrible and fabulous at the same time. I'm kind of like, okay, well, if I'm going to die today, I'm going to rock this. And so I just had a, you know, 200, I was on in my Canons, so the 1DX with a 200 millimeter lens. And so he would get as close as he could to like when the camera would be pulling back to like turn around, he would like zoom in, then knew I was there, he would act for me. And so I got these shots and I'm like, it, the, you know, these old helicopters, they vibrate. And I'm like, I bet there is not one shot that is in focus, that doesn't have such bad camera shake and me shake. I'm hanging out of a helicopter in the jungle. The pictures were fine and I loved it. That's awesome. Um, side question. So when you're submitting all your photos to the studio, do you just give them like your whole SD card or do you hand pick what they're given? Um, I essentially give them my whole card. What, uh, what the, 
process is, is at the end of the day, I download my cards onto a hard drive. I always ask permission in advance, but I tell everybody that this is how I like to do my work. I go through and I only remove pictures of my shoes, pictures of when somebody walks right in front of my lens, um, a picture where there's a super unattractive false expression that there nobody needs to see that. So I'll go through and do just a really basic edit. And then I turn that drive into a lab and then the labs put the images up online and then everybody at the studio um, and any of the filmmakers get to look at my work online um, and the copyright belongs to the studio. So I do not own my work at all. I'm, I'm just like the sound man. The sound man records sound and gives it to the, the studio. I take pictures and give them to the studio. They're leasing your talents. That's right. Right. Uh, Trent, is there another one you want to talk about? Yeah, uh, last movie. Um, Call of the Wild. We were wondering how it changes your job when it's very like blue screen dependent and also when Harrison Ford has to interact with the CGI dog. Okay. I will just say, because you said Harrison Ford, I did not care what Harrison Ford was doing. He is such an amazing man <laughs> that I did not see blue screen ever. Mm-hmm. I did not see a CGI dog wasn't there ever. I was in the moment with his performance and he was in the moment of his performance. So that being said, if it had been a bad actor, I would have been crying hysterically that I was trapped on a movie with blue screen and a bad actor, but he was just so great. And the whole cast was the bomb. So what for me, the way that I handled it was there's a lot of people that do what I do that hate blue screen and green screen. But in my mind, I just imagine whatever it is that I'm supposed to be imagining. So I imagine the Yukon, you know, at the turn of the century in the background, and I really don't see blue. And I compose for some mountaintops and, you know, I just just adapt because they can then, you know, it's like shooting on a seamless. They can then back my pictures with anything they want to of the Yukon, you know? And so I think of it um, as very useful. I will actually add that they don't do that as much as I wish they would. I wish they would use more of my pictures and put in more backgrounds. Um, But at any rate, they, 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 they tend to use more of the practical location shots of mine than the ones that could have the Yukon going into depth. Uh, really, really last movie, because uh, I just realized I wanted to ask about it. Um, so you've worked with Terrence Malick a few times, uh, Tree of Life, Brad Pitt. It sounds epic and awesome. Was it that? It was. It really was. Um, and Sean Penn. Um, and Jessica Chastain amazing work. Um, Brad Pitt is remarkable. Um, But 
but the the thing is is that he again he's super professional and really private so so you know he will hang out and chat because because you know by the end of the shoot you've hung out and chatted with everybody on the show but um but he really he was just super focused super in character and um would very often step away to be by himself. And he's got the kind of vibe, the presence that when Brad Pitt steps away to be by himself, you don't go say, oh, so hi, Brad, what are you going to do this weekend? You don't. You can see that he's actually still working and that he's working alone and you leave him to do that. But um, the thing that's, that's odd about my job is this. What I love about the people that I work with is that they are at the top of their game. They are incredibly good at their jobs. So like, I'm not starstruck that I work with Clint Eastwood and Sam Raimi and Alexander Payne and Terrence Malick, but to watch these people, and, and Greta, to be honest, to watch these people do their jobs, to, to watch people that are good at their jobs rocking it is just remarkable. So I can be as excited when I find out who the DP is as I am when I find out who the cast is. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, you know, I can't wait to work because I'd worked with Sean Penn before. I'm like, oh, great. And I'd actually worked with Brad Pitt before, although briefly also. So I'm like, oh, that's great. I can't wait to think. Really? Chivo is lighting this? Oh my God, I can't wait to get there. So I get as excited about the crew as I do about the cast. Yeah, ju- just to be able to experience like all tours like in their element, it's like you're in the presence of a higher power. Well said. And the thing that's so incredible about my job is that I have to be right in the middle, right up front, right up front. When when I went to USC film school, um, what I really had hoped to do was to screenwrite and perhaps later get to direct something that I had written. But when I took the job as the assistant to the director and the assistant to the producer, um, and then I was out, uh, I was out in Borneo on second unit, and I started shooting some stills there, which is where when I fell in love with stills. I realized that I really wanted to be on set with the filmmakers. I did not want. I mean, I love writing. My my father's a published poet. My mother was an incredible uh, journalist and um, writer. And so I've got writing in my blood and I really did want to write, but I wanted to be on set. So when I started shooting, I was like, this is where I need to be. Trent, do you, do you want to ask our, our final big one? Yeah. Our, so our final question for all of our interviewees is what's the last great thing that you've watched? Let me think. The last great thing that I watched, it's hard because we're streaming now, you know, and I, my, the one thing I will say, I love going to, to movies in theaters. I love that. And I love, um, I also love watching movies with people and I'm sheltering in place alone. 
So you can't do either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I can't do either of those things. Exactly. So I'm, so the last the great thing that I watched was a Bunuel film called that obscure object of my desire, which I had seen years before. And I decided, I thought, man, I just thought that was so incredible. And so I watched it again. And Bunuel, if you guys have, can watch Eddie Bunuel, he, he was friends with, with Salvador Dali. And it's craziness, really brilliant. And then I also watched, uh, again recently, was Once Upon a Time in, in the West. Oh, oh, Sergio Leone. I, I love Once Upon a Time in America. But I love Once Upon a Time in the West. So that was the one I rewatched. I thought you were going to say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, okay. So that's the last. Tarantino? Yeah, that's the last film. I'm just trying to think. Did I see that in the theater? Is that, do you guys know? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that was pre-corona. Yeah, that that was was released in 2019. Yeah, then that's probably, that's probably the last uh, favorite film I saw in the theater. But so I've been I've been rewatching old favorites, um, as opposed to streaming new stuff. Uh, we're the same way. Like during these hard times, like the comfort food food movies are like what get you through the hard times. That's right. And I'm going to tell you one really stupid nerdy thing. Please. Because I can. Yeah. So one Please. of my favorite movies of all time, don't ask me why, is Princess Bride. Excellent film. Yeah, okay. Rob Reiner. Movie. So I love this movie, all right? So I got to do some little project. I do not remember the name of it or what it was for, but it was for television. And Mandy Tinkin, who played the Spaniard, was in this in 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 this little thing. And I was just doing like like two two days on it and in the two days he was dying he was dying so I like hardly even got on set to shoot him because it was such a sensitive scene if it's super super sensitive or sex or something there's certain scenes where stills won't go in so he was leaving Mandy Patinkin was leaving and everybody was saying goodbye to him and I had hardly even said hello and he'd done the whole film and I was only there for two days and I and he was leaving and I just looked at him and he walked past me and I said, you know, like whatever. And he walked out and I'm, he's walking by himself and I'm looking at his back. And I said, okay, here I go. And I went in behind him and I said, I'm so sorry, excuse me. You know, I, I hate to disturb you, but would you please just tell me that your name is Enigo Montoya? So he said, he said, yes, but I'm, but I'm gonna tell, tell you this the way that I tell little kids, because little kids, they want, they, they don't know who I am. They look at me, I've got gray hair. I don't look like the Spaniard. So he took me in his arms and he put his cheekbone to my cheekbone and he held me and he said, my name is Enigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. I'm sure that rattled you to your very core. To my very core. And I just stood there and he, then he stood back to look at my, to look at the appreciation on my face. And I was like, oh my God. And then he just sort of like, you know, tipped his head and walked away. 
And right behind me was this young, like 18 year old boy, kind of like long in his body, a little gawky, hadn't quite filled out his physical manhood. And he just looked at me and he goes, oh my God, you just made my life. (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate your ability to like shoot your shot with the celebrities when you're like, I'm only going to have this chance once. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It took, it took all the bravery I had. Yeah. No. Oh, uh, your Robert Redford story. We never got to it. Okay. So basically what it was, was I, um, was asked to do two weeks on a river runs through it. Um, because again, the still photographer who was his show, he had to leave. So they brought me in for two weeks and I knew the prop master and she was one of my best friends. So the night before the whole show started, for me, excuse me, the night before I went to work, um, she and I were out at a restaurant and it's a small town out in, you know, um, Montana. And at the table next to us was Robert Redford having dinner with, you know, with his people. And so my friend, the prop master introduced me. She says, Oh, this is, you know, Mary Walsh. She'll be doing stills, you know, tomorrow. He goes, Oh, great. You know, nice to meet you. Um, you guys are having dinner together. How do you two know each other? And we both just like, we sort of like cringe and we were sort of embarrassed. And we said, Oh, we did these two B movies together. And he goes, really? What were they? And we go, Oh, well, masters of the universe and cherry 2000. He goes, cherry 2000. I love Cherry 2000. Okay, you've got to tell me. You know, the scene where the boat is in the middle of the desert. And he just started picking our brains. And this film that previously I had thought was sort of like something that one doesn't discuss. When I found out that it was one of Robert Redford's favorite movies, I like went back and had to rewatch it. Cult, fabulous film directed by Steve DeJarnett. And on that, I was assistant to the director, assistant to Steve Jarnett. I did not do stills on it. Well, uh, that the, that's a fantastic assortment of stories. Uh, you've had an amazing, amazing career uh, thus far. Uh, uh, Trent, any? No, that's all for now. Thank you so much for coming on. You've been a, a wonderful guest. Thank you very much. Um, whenever you stop recording, I just want to pay you guys a compliment, or shall I do it while we're recording? Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want my mom to hear it, so sure. Okay, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay. So what I want to say to you is I think your questions were super intelligent and interesting. Um, you gave me the opportunity to actually show my career with some breadth and I got to tell some of the fun of it and I got to tell some of the technical part of it. I also want to completely support you in reaching out to strangers like myself um, and following something that you guys clearly, I, mean, I can practically imagine you guys sitting together and coming up with your idea that you want to start doing this. I want to support your continuing to do it. And I want to uh, support you in your love of film and to um, encourage you to help keep movies in theaters. Because now that everything is streaming, there's a lot of film directors that are worried, like, you know, I'm trying to make a feature. I want this to be in the theater what if we don't go back to theaters? What if everything is streaming? So I just want to say, you know, in your communities, support your local theater and um, 
just uh, help us get past this pandemic and uh, back to the future. Well, thank you so much. Thank you that. so much for very nice compliment. And your generosity in coming on and answering our questions is what makes it all possible. Thanks so much. Uh, Win -win. Thank you, guys. So that was our guest for today, uh, Mary Weissmiller-Wallace. She worked on Promising Young Woman, among a plethora of other awesome movies that uh, you've probably heard of. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Parth. Yeah? That interview. Wasn't it great? I liked okay, it. Trent, I, I have to ask you. I thought it was epic. What did you think? Yeah, yeah. Epic is a good way to put it. What? Okay. Like, when she was talking, I was like, this is great. And then when we responded... You know what I was like? I was like, this is epic. And then when we responded, it was like, holy... I was like, this oh is pretty God. good, too. Like This is epic. Not right? as good... No, but, no, no, but no. not bad either. No. You know, we are never as good as our guests, which are the best of any show. At the end, when she like showered us with compliments, I was like, "Thanks for saying that." I know. I was like, "That was really nice." Well, I guess since this is such a long thing, we should just tell our guests what's coming up next. So next uh, episode, we're going to discuss promising young woman, since uh, that's like our known release structure, and uh, we may have a. Uh, guest on to talk about it with us am i a wrong special guest a special guest to be announced yeah guys we're gonna leave you in suspense we're gonna make you wonder who it's gonna be parth and i didn't want to discuss promising young woman as just two guys so we're bringing in a third party to spice it up we did something similar with gone girl yes um, brought my very good friend yeah sophia alexis we're diluting the masculinity and you can wonder are we i mean since we're not yet saying the gender of this uh third person could it could be a, a man and then it would be three men talking about promising young woman which is even well, worse trent i think that's a perfect place to leave this off find out next week if craft services deserves <laughs> to be canceled for its mistreatment of women <laughs> we'll find out